Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the first part of our special series, Rome, the Decline of Democracy. I am joined here with Brett, an expert on the Roman Empire. While Rome might seem like a distant and far off time from us, some of us living here in the United States are beginning to see parallels between an empire which lasted over a thousand years. Others might say it is far too soon to start connecting the dots. Unlike the United States, Rome went through a series of revolutions and changes, starting off as a republic in which originally only two consuls were elected that would make decisions governing the state with each one having the power to veto the other, in addition to 44 public offices. Much like their Greek predecessors, Rome proudly carried the democratic traditions that had first taken root in the streets of Athens. However, unlike Athens, which was a direct democracy, in the sense that each citizen over the age of 20 would directly vote for the laws that they felt were necessary, Rome subscribed to the republic system in which representatives would take office and vote on laws on behalf of their citizenry. It was thought that having representatives whose sole purpose was to become experts on the issues at hand would lead to better decision-making than the ill-informed masses who may not have the time and patience to dig in too deeply concerning every issue pressing the state. Reflecting on the failures of the Greeks, the implementation of a republic was certainly a huge step forward in eliminating inefficiency. The removal of the average citizen from the voting call may have created cracks in the way that citizens engaged with their government. While citizens certainly rejoice that better and wiser hands were at the helm, this may have led to more people becoming complacent and ignorant to what was happening around them. In this first part, Brett and I will discuss the Republic years and how it eventually fell, and perhaps what pitfalls we here in the United States may need to look for. Brett, can you start by saying some of the things that worked well with the Roman Republic? So yeah, there were a lot of things that the, Rome, the, the chosen form of government of Rome uh, did very well. Rome was very good at, I mean, a lot of the things that they were doing well are things that all democracies do well, which is a lot less civil unrest due to shared interest in the government. And a general consensus on matters would mean that decisions that were being made were being made by, as you said, many experts, right? People would weigh in. And if you have, you're much more of a danger of like boondoggles when you have one person who's just like, I'm making the decision and I take no input from anyone. So in that regard, Rome was very effective. Also, not as relevant today, but was relevant for the time, is that the, the, involvement, of the involvement of the average citizen in government meant higher pride in government. And what that meant was easier recruitment for the army. Rome was able to raise huge armies super fast because people felt like it was their duty to protect the government that they themselves were involved in. Whereas kingdoms maybe struggled a bit more to convince farmers that their gold pile that they were sitting on was worth dying for. 
So that's interesting. So uh, you, would you agree that citizens who have greater ownership in their state are more likely to take up military service than in states where the individual feels uh, disenfranchised? I would agree on that, yes. In, in At least in, in this context, yes. Yeah, absolutely, because a lot of people... In, you know, when thinking of the United States, think of the Vietnam War and the, the reluctance of the citizen to uh, be drafted and having people flee to Canada, not partake in their military obligation as a result of disenfranchised, feeling, uh, feelings of disenfranchised. Well, in what ways did the Roman citizens feel enfranchised? Like if I was a Roman citizen, what could I point to and say, wow, this government's working for me. I have a say in this. Well, you'd have... Uh, the tribunate probably would be the um, how the average citizen interacted with their government. The the consulship was more reserved for the the hot, the cream of the crop, as it were, for Roman citizens. There were only ever two per year, um, and then the Senate was a fairly small collection of the wealthy who got together on matters of debate and often forming laws. But the tribunate is where everyone got a vote. Hmm. The tribunate um, represented the people, the tribunate laws that the Senate, that the laws that the, the Senate were debating on were passed in the tribunate. You know, it's funny you mention that because even in the United States with our modern day Senate and House, uh, a lot of people think that the Senate is the, the house of the elite. So would you say that the, uh, the tribunate is akin to our modern day House of Representatives? Yeah, and the assembly, the tribune at the assembly, whatever you want to call it, is, yes, our government, which is based on the Roman structure of government, that's what our House of Representatives is, is they are the assembly. Or as close as you can get. It's not obviously a one-to-one thing, but yeah, pretty much. That, that's interesting because I, I never knew that Rome was like the uh, birthplace of the bicameral uh, legislature. You know, like that's usually something that's attributed to the Enlightenment, but it, it's actually very interesting that Rome had a, a version. Now, what would happen if these two houses disagreed with one another? Which house would prevail? <laughs> it depends what era you're referring to, to be <laughs> frank. the Because this is a very new idea of being ruled by something other than brute force, the rules that that kind of control how things happen, they change, they're bent, they're broken. A lot of them are not official. So in early Roman Republican era, generally the Senate is the one that's in charge. But as time goes on, the assembly, the plebeian assembly, gets more and more power and authority during this era of the, the late Republican period, you see a lot of breaking of, tr- of political traditions. You see a lot of like skirting of the law, a lot of moral grayness, a lot of political grayness that is like kind of the undoing of their, their democracy. A lot of people uh, point to the Senate as being like more corrupt. Like we have this idea that the plebeians or, or the House kind of represent the will of the people more. But you're saying in Rome, it's kind of the opposite. When the plebeians kind of gains greater power, that's where more uh, nefarious hap- uh, behavior started happening. So, 
So in general, the plebeian, the plebeian assembly was dominated by, well, neither was dominated. We'll say that both had them. There was two political parties in Rome at this time, the, the Populare and the Optimates. The Optimates were kind of like the pro-rich party and the Populare were kind of like the pro-people party. That said, there are no good guys in this era. It is not, people picture it as like the poor rebelling against the rich, but it, the people at the top of both sides of this are doing it for the sake of personal power, of personal wealth, of personal glory. And in fact, Caesar, Julius Caesar, was a populare. He was one of the like pro land uh, redistribution, pro poor people. And he's largely credited with toppling the Republic. Would you consider Caesar to be almost a predecessor, like an ancient predecessor to Lenin in, in some ways? Like he's sort of running on this, this platform of like redistributing from the wealthy. Like, like, is that a fair comparison to make? Yeah, Rome actually might be like one of the first welfare states in the known world or in history rather. Um, Rome through land redistribution, tax forgiveness, social programs. They had something called the bread dole, which was where they would give food to the poor people who couldn't afford it. Rome was pretty progressive in terms of its treatment of the lower classes, whether you want to say it was altruism or necessity is a whole other story. But the fact of the matter is that they did it. Oh, that's, that's very interesting. But I guess it's the intention that that kind of matters. So when when Caesar was uh, creating these generous social programs, it may have put it may have helped people. It may have given them something to eat, but it wasn't necessarily done with the intention of taking care of people. It's kind of to get them in your pocket. That's correct. And it's also worth mentioning that he was not necessarily he was not necessarily like spending money out of like his own pocket, let's say to do this. And he wasn't even spending like the government's money to do this. He was genociding a whole group of people just North of Rome and using their resources to push these social programs. So it's not like he was sacrificing anything either. You know, he was stealing basically. Was, was Rome uh, falling into debt during this time or was this stuff that it could pay for? No, Rome, presumably could have paid for this had it wanted to. Um, I see. The, the richest of Rome's citizens were very, very rich. Now, does Caesar tax the rich directly, or could you speak more about these people in the north that had this great abundance that Rome could tap into? So to the north of Rome were groups of barbarian tribes. Uh, the region was known as Gaul, present day France, a little bit of Germany, Switzerland, I think. So Rome is Rome throughout its whole history is characterized by conquest. It is an ever expanding, ever conquering state of warfare. Caesar, to get into it, I have to go a little bit into his history. Um, Caesar has an interesting story in politics in that he formed one of the first, we'll call it like true political parties. Uh, with two of his fellow senators, a man named Pompey and a man named Licinius Crassus. The three of them formed a handshake agreement to support any measure that the other two would go with. It was called the triumvirate. It's considered to be like 
one of the major downfalls of the Republic. This idea that these three men who had massive political power said, hey, if we pool our resources, we have enough clout that we can, the three of us, do whatever we want. We can box out everyone else. Was there a checks and balances amongst these three men, or how did they None. keep each other? None. No, no checks and balances whatsoever. Really, the triumvirate was between Crassus and Pompey. Caesar was supposed to be the check, right? Ah. And what ended up happening is he kind of ran away with everything and took the whole cake for himself. But the, the quick version of it is uh, Caesar wanted, uh, in Rome, after you serve as consul, you generally get a proconsular proconsul governorship in one of Rome's territory, external territories. And that was kind of where you'd make your money, right? Uh, obviously, people don't do things without, especially in Rome, without the, um, the promise of power and money to follow up. So consulars, their kind of retirement package is they would become a governor. And generally, the governors on the border states would make the most money and get the most resources because being on a border state meant you had the capacity to invade other countries. When you do that and you sack a city, you keep that money, right? You, that, was, that was like a legitimate way for them to get rich. And so Rome, so Caesar was made proconsular of uh, Swiss Alpine Gaul, which is Gaul, I think Swiss Alpine Gaul is like literally like Gaul above the Alps. And with that position, he kind of invaded all of, of Northern Gaul um, under very flimsy, very similar to the United States, under very flimsy pretexts, you know, like they said something mean about us, so we're going to go in and we're going to take all their resources. And by the end of his, his, his campaign, he was a war hero. He was one of, if not the richest men in the world. He was, he had legions and legions of loyal soldiers following him. He was, he was ready. He, he was unstoppable. So it's like almost a, a, a birth of our like military industrial complex. We invade a place, we have its, uh, we sack its resources, and then a host of other people get, get rich off of it. Because I imagine um, in Rome, there, there were people that needed to manufacture the weapons and the shields. Yeah. And that's very interesting. And, and like, what are some of the pitfalls that, that an empire, like if you, I imagine like there are a lot of glories, like, okay, we get to take over all of their resources. But what do you think are some of the pitfalls you have if your entire economy is kind of based on conquering some new piece of land and exploiting its resources? One, there's a lot of headache that goes with incorporating land and people into a nation. Lots of political influence is spent distributing land, levying taxes. That is not to be, you can't ignore that. Large empires need large bureaucracies. Um, Rome got around it a little bit, which we can talk about later, but for the most part, that is true. Um, another one would be you need large armies to do the conquering. And having large armies sitting around in your empire is really, really dangerous. Because, especially during this time period, armies were not always loyal to the state. Sometimes they were loyal to their general. And I, you can, I'll let you put the pieces together of why that could be dangerous <laughs> to a nation. <laughs> Of these conquered people, for example, they must not have been too happy. Like if they, when they were annexed into Rome, 
did they gain citizen rights or were they just treated as like sort of like helots in, 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 in Spartan times as just slaves? So you have no citizenship for a while, but they did eventually integrate into Roman society. Um, and when I say eventually, I don't mean like hundreds of years, I mean like decades. Most, a lot of them were enslaved or captured. You know, something probably like half of a million Gallic citizens were enslaved and probably triple that killed during the Gallic Wars. What, what generally would happen is the, there would be like a few like local chieftains who would support the Rome, support the Romans, in this case, Caesar, in their invasions. And they, they and their tribe citizen people would be rewarded with privileges, with power, with rank, with influence, and then eventually citizenship. So that's interesting. So it wasn't the state of slavery was not permanent. There are there were certain things that these people could do to redeem themselves and work their way up to becoming recognized uh, by the by the republic as as rightful citizens as well. Yes, slavery was interesting in Rome in that, like you said, there were some slaves who were slaves forever, right? Um, and some slaves. Are, their lives were grueling. You could get sent to like the silver mines in the Iberian Peninsula and your lifespan would be something like five years. But other slaves were, were more like, 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 like if Rome had a DMV, the people who work at the desk would be like slaves, right? Like that would be, that's what they would use for that kind of office. And slaves could make money and they could buy their way out of slavery. Wow. And, um, Slavery was more akin to as like a status position and less of like a set of, though there were legal rights attached, it was more akin to like a status position than an actual legal holding. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, I think that if you don't give people like, especially conquered people, some ray of hope, then that just becomes a, uh, a permanent police state. So I, I think that they must have wised up over the decades that we've got to um, get, we have to kind of create some kind of plan forward for these people. Rome was very, very good at settling their conquered peoples and at distributing land in a way that kept the people happy. Rome was very good at socially diffusing the cultures that they conquered into their own culture. So one of, the, one of the, the main reasons that I would point to Roman success throughout history, and they definitely were a successful nation for a long time, is their ability to use immigration as a weapon instead of, instead of like a, a hindrance. Rome got stronger. The more people were put under their banner, they didn't struggle and strain under um, different like cultures clashing with each other. I mean, they did a little, but not as much as you'd think, you know? Now... Would you say that as uh, Rome annexed more territory, does that coincide with the plebeian uh, uh, class, uh, the, the plebeian representation increasing? Are those two going along the same strand? No, it's not, it's not quite like that with a, um, like that, it's not exactly like the House of Representatives where like they would incorporate like the Iberian Peninsula and then they'd send like five representatives over to represent Iberia. Uh, no, that's not, not the case. 
Ah, okay. So how did those people that were, were Congress, how, what was their representative body or did they not have one? Well, that's, that's the thing is that it was not official. Their representative bodies were generally the, the, the old tribe, the tribal chieftains, what, sorry, what were tribal chieftains would become kind of like the representatives unofficially for that region to Rome. Rome would, when Rome reached out and Rome, the, when Rome reached out for, let's say something simple like taxation, right? The way that would work is that Rome would reach out to these tribal chieftains and they would say, listen, we need to collect $100 in tax. And then the chieftain would pay the Rome, would pay the, the Roman state $100. Then that chieftain would go to his people. Let's say he had 10 people and he would be like, hey, I need $15 from each of you because you know, Rome just asked me for taxes. He would collect the $15 from all 10 of them. He just paid Rome a hundred bucks. He just got 150 from his people. He made money. He's happy. Rome got their tax money. They're happy. And the people, I don't know, they, they do benefit from taxation by Rome because they get roads, they get bathhouses, they get amphitheaters. There's lots of social construction going on at this time. So yeah, so everyone's happy, but technically the chieftain doesn't really have a position in the Roman government. So that's interesting. So there's two tiers of Roman uh, government. There's like the formal system, and then these conquered territories are sort of a part of like an informal uh, form of governance where they're not a part of the Senate. They're not a part of the, of the plebeian house. They are, are just separate entities that it, it, I kind of think of the British Empire in a way where they would kind of take over a place, make it a commonwealth, but India was not necessarily a part of like, they didn't have a stake in the British parliament. They were just kind of uh, ruled separately in, in, in a more indirect way. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Rome eventually would get around to incorp officially incorporating all of the territories, most of the territories that it takes. But yes, for a long time, um, they just kind of have like, like you said, like a commonwealth area where they are loyal to Rome, they pay Rome tribute, they pay Rome taxes, they send Rome troops, Rome builds roads and stuff, but they have no representation, they don't get to make laws. Let's turn back to Caesar and the rise of the plebeian class. So the plebeian class is obviously rising in, in nature within Rome proper. And Caesar, yeah, go ahead. Well, I think it's worth talking, but Caesar is often pointed at as like the beginning and the end of the Roman Republic. That's, if you... If you studied Rome in high school or even like freshman college, then that's what you would learn is that like Rome was doing good, along comes Caesar, down goes the Republic, up comes the empire. But the, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day and it certainly wasn't <laughs> destroyed in a day. Before Caesar, it's worth talking about a couple of people who kind of started this idea of the collapse of the, the, of, uh, the Roman Republic. So Caesar was doing his thing around 50 BC. About 100 years before him, there is uh, a pair of brothers whose last name are Gracchi, Tiberius and Gaius Gracchi. They, Tiberius, lived, Tiberius was operating in about 135 BC. At some point, he led a disastrous campaign in the Iberian Peninsula, which is uh, present-day Spain, right? About 20,000 troops were captured. Uh, when he drew up the terms of surrender, the Senate rebuked him. They, they chastised him 
they called him a coward. They called him a failure. They really like tore him, tore him a new one, right? And the, the main rebukement came from his, actually his father-in-law. It was this huge insult, huge insult. And Tiberius kind of realized that he, he was, from that point on, he was at odds with the Senate. But he had plans and he had a need for support to push his plans through. If he couldn't find support in the, the wealthy Senate, he needed to turn his attention elsewhere. And where he turned was the assembly. He uh -huh. ran and won for tribunate. And as a tribune of the plebes, he constantly would rally for, for land reform. His, his thing was land reform. They had just won a lot of wars in North Africa. This was like towards the end of the Punic War. Or not the end. This was a little bit past the, the, the Punic War. It was maybe like a decade after the Third Punic War was over. And soldiers needed places to be settled. They needed land because that's kind of, that was like Rome's deal. That's how they like paid soldiers was like, you serve your time and you get money and you get a plot of land, right? Um, and so what Tiberius wanted was there was a lot of public, public land who, uh, that was supposed to be distributed by the state but was actually being used by the wealthy to just make them richer, right? He wanted to use that land to give to the people, and the people loved him for that. The problem is that the way that the Roman democracy was set up was that it was really easy if like one person in the system didn't agree with you to just like railroad your whole plan. The consuls could veto each other, and the, there, were, there were like 10 tribunates, 10 tribunes of the plebs at any one time. If one tribunate didn't like what you were doing, you could just veto your your thing that's like the filibuster today but pretty much that's correct yes uh, so that's actually a really interesting comparison it was very much like that and so what ended up happening was that tiberius was at odds with one of his fellow tribunates and what he did was he had the tribunate physically removed from the debate floor or whatever you want to call it so he could not object to the passing of the law huh this was not technically illegal in the sense that like you would get in trouble, but not a ton of trouble. And this is where democracy, in my opinion, is the most fragile, is when people start to realize that goal of the game is to win, then anything that gets you closer to winning is worth doing, as long as it doesn't move you in the opposite direction. And so when you're removing, forcibly removing tribunates from the, the speaking floor, the people who are doing the forcible removing might spend some time in trouble, but one, they're not you, so who cares? And two, it's worth it to get your stuff passed. The end result, the ends are justifying the means here, right? Uh, and so that's what we start to see in this era with this guy, with, with Tiberius, is we and start- so It's a huge lack of uh, foresight, because if you're doing this to your opposition in the present, that could that that's now on the table and that could very well happen to you down the road that is absolutely what starts happening you start seeing an escalation of force in politics where what was once debate becomes rioting and thuggery and it's it's more and more becoming who has the scarier supporters that can threaten the other people into voting the way you want to vote or prevent the people you don't like from voting. Bribery was always a thing. It's becoming more of a thing. Eventually, the Senate, tired of Tiberius kind of like uh, 
this demagoguery of appealing to the people and riling them up and, and thuggery, they, he actually is killed, right? The Senate has him killed. Wow. Uh, yeah, he's him and about 300 of his followers are like, are murdered, right? Um, this, they thought, the, the optimists thought this would be the end, but his brother steps into the vacuum, Gaius Gracchus. And he's, he's even worse because he has all of the opinions of his brother Tiberius with the chip on his shoulder that the Senate murdered his brother. Wow. Right? And it's, <laughs> it gets worse and worse it's in, with, uh, with the, these two parties to the point where there is no consensus anymore. And the way you get things done is, is by breaking, and that's the thing, is they're not breaking the rules. They are doing things that were, that are, were never done before, but not technically illegal. Like, for example, Gaius runs for a third term as tribunate. That's not illegal, but no one had ever done it. And it was just frowned upon to do, you know. So being like a maverick is sort of pushing the boundaries of like the legality of the Republic in a way. Yes. This, there, there's an, a secondary thing at play as well in that the more violent and dangerous politics get, the harder it becomes to be against the status quo and to be against the people in charge because you're not just risking social ostracism, you're risking your life. To stand against some, to stand against the Gracchi brothers and say like, we don't think there should be land distribution. People died, people were killed in mob riots for standing against them. That's, you know, I, I mean, this is obviously a very weak comparison, but I, I do think a little bit of social media in the sense that if you say something that people disagree with, you're not going to be stabbed to death. Like, I'm not going that extreme, but it's like you do risk something personal. You risk your, your livelihood or, or losing your job. And I, I know that's a far stretch, and I'm sure that we're much safer than, than being stabbed in the streets by an angry mob. But I think that perhaps like social social mob like mentality might be like a uh, a twenty first century kind of of this happening. Yeah, this I, I would say that this this happens throughout all of history because, like I said before, it's a zero sum game. You win and you win everything, or you lose and you you don't win. And so it's like the 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 group that is zealot and and free of impurity and is able to, to rally their forces the best to do what they want will win. And history won't care that they, they had underhanded methods of doing it. History won't care. Like if, if, if you're saying like, we are gonna make changes, but we're not gonna play by their rules, we're gonna do things the right way, you will lose to the group that is willing to do anything to win. And that group has to be very confident that they've got all their bases checked because once they start crossing the line, then your opposition is going to cross the line just the same. Absolutely. And I think that happened. We'll, we see that throughout history over and over again. And we see it in, in Rome, which is the only thing I'm qualified to speak on, which is um, that the opposition is that when you cross a line, the opposition crosses it right back. And so, like, you know, uh, the Gracchi brothers are having tribunes ejected from meeting rooms so that they can um, vote, so that they can pass votes that they want on stuff. And then the optimates are doing it right back to them and are bullying them in the streets and bribing uh, and threatening members of the popularity to not show up to votes so that their, their stuff will pass. It's getting 
worse, right? And on both sides, you're seeing a lot of demagoguery. You're seeing a lot of fire branding and saber rattling and because that's, that's what riles people up and, and drives them to action. After the Gracchi brothers, the next one that we'll see is uh, a Novus Homo or a new man, as they're called, named uh, Marius. And Marius is a, Marius is a general who, in order to win a war in North Africa, requests that the Senate allow him to pay his army directly. Up until Marius, soldiers are paid by the state. After Marius, soldiers are paid by their generals. And huh. this was Loyal loyalties. Yeah. <laughs> this was this war was not winnable without this measure being passed. You could argue that they didn't need to be fighting this war, but it was not winnable. But the as you already guessed, one of the unintended side effects is <laughs> armies became fiercely loyal to their generals. Also, this enabled before this the armies were mostly made up of upper class nobles wanting to fight and get glory. After this, the armies became made up mostly of poor people who were using it as a means of income. And so even more so, you would just follow who was giving you money instead of following your morals or your ideals. You're, fi you're fighting for the paycheck and not, necessary, uh, not necessarily like the glories of war or, or for a just cause. Were these now? I know that Rome did eventually have uh, mercenaries. Would these people be considered mercenaries, or were they no, still okay? These would not be. I what you are saying is correct, uh, but at the time, at this time, these would not be considered mercenaries yet. They are Roman citizens, just poor Roman citizens. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. And so, with with Marius, what you see is even more. He's following through even more of what the Gracchi were doing. So Marius rises to the position of consul. He has some absurd number of consulships in a row. You're really only supposed to do one and then you let the next person go. How, long, has, is it, how long is the term? One year. Okay. Uh, a consular would rule for one year and they were basically kings. Uh, they, they, didn't, they were not like the president. They, they made the laws, right? They hold, so the Senate would debate stuff and then the, the consulate and the assembly would make laws. They could both make laws. Right? Okay. And then after a year, you step down, and then the next guy steps in, and then he gets to make all the laws. There was no – the checks on the consulate was the term limit. Did that it ever was, go from two to one, or were there always just two? There were, always, there were always two. Okay. Um, there were always two. The, 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 the office gets a little muddied when the republic falls, uh, but it's like once the republic falls, it's like <laughs> you know, it's like calling. It's like it's like asking if like what the term limits for like Kim Jong Un is in North Korea. It's like he probably technically has them, but they're they don't matter, you know. Um, so Marius goes from you know they're supposed to only be in power for one year. He's in power for like seven years. Wow. Right? And they just keep voting him in. And he's being voted in because of bribery. He's being voted in because he's legitimately popular, because he's a war hero. Um, and also because his soldiers, they love him because he paid them and they won. And in addition to getting paid, they also got all the money and slavers and whatever that they got for sacking all these lands, right? You get a ton of money from invading. That's, Rome has got rich off of its invasions and conquests. Um, Eventually, a young rising star named Sulla kind of comes up and steals the reins away from Marius, 
Marius does not like this. And while Sulla is away at war, Marius uses thuggery and, and demagoguery to essentially steal control of the country from Sulla back to him. And part of doing this is a bloody round of purges where Marius and his supporters are actively killing people who support Sulla and Sulla's regime. Sulla then, not in the country because he's away at, in war, turns around with his army that is loyal to him and invades Rome. This wow. is the first time in history that a Roman army will enter Rome, right? It's, that's supposed to be illegal, but desperate times called for desperate measures. A lot of his, uh, his generals like refused, but they did it. They entered Rome, they wiped out the opposition, uh, they declared Marius an enemy of the state, they killed off a lot of his supporters, and then Sulla instituted a bunch of laws that he was hoping would prevent this kind of thing from happening again, and then he like surrendered his dictatorial powers. Because he was obvious, when you march in with an army and take control, you're a dictator, right? Like that's, that's, that's you know, it's very interesting that you know, we have this kind of pattern throughout history of like people doing heinous things, breaking all sorts of laws. And I, I, I kind of imagine this like in the Russian revolution a little bit where it's like the czar is bad. We're going to kill the czar. We're going to kill his family. But then when I come into power, I'm going to put all these safeguard provisions in place. And it, it doesn't quite work out that way because because you came into power with such bloodied hands is do you think it's difficult to then put to, to be like okay i'm in power everything's back to normal and now we're going to have rule and order do you think that's a difficult transition if you came to power through nefarious means oh it's impossible and in fact sulla eventually leads to julius caesar he's the next guy in this order of you know degrading roman ideal or uh, republican ideals but absolutely because the takeaway is rules can be broken any rule can be broken with sufficient force and authority. And so you can't break rules and then build up new rules and be like, okay, but these are good now. Because the takeaway that the next generation will take and take away that the next generation did take was the people who control the armies control the country. That's right? interesting. The only thing that Julius Caesar was confused about was why did Sulla surrender power after he made his rules. That was a mistake that Julius Caesar was not going to be making. Once he amassed his power, he was not gonna be surrendering it. Right, right. Yeah. I guess like even, you know, one exception would be the American Revolution, which I think it was, it was bloodied and there was acts of violence, but I'm wondering like what, what, what made that work where it's like there was like a violent overthrow and then new laws were implemented. And then obviously we're still here today. I'm wondering when you violently take over, like what, what kind of cracks might there have been in Rome that, that weren't necessarily there? Because, you know, the more, the more I'm actually just thinking this in my head now, there are violent revolutions that do work. What needs to be in place then? Like when those laws are just uh, cemented on the ground, I, I wonder what's missing. Well, so for Rome, the, a big difference is that they were not changing their government when they were doing this. It was just one person would like topple the guy at the top, the, the, the president, if you will. And then he'd be like, okay, I'm the new president now. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the American revolution, they changed the whole government. I see. I see. The other, the other thing that I would say would be different is that the, the enemy of the American democracy, which would be, I guess the English at this point, were not interested 
in coming back and refighting that fight right then and there. Whereas in Rome, after the populare would like topple the optimates, the optimates would fire right back with their people and, and make, a, make a run at it themselves. I think that this is, it's almost like, it's kind of like a quasi civil war almost where it's like, it's, you're not the, the person who's taking power isn't saying, okay, we're now the Confederate States of Rome or something. They're not forming a new government. They're operating within that same rule of law, but they're just using violent and unjust means to gaining power. That's correct. That is a hundred percent correct. They, and in fact, you say civil war, that's what it's considered as a civil war. Julius Caesar's fight is considered a civil war. His son, his adopted son, Augustus Caesar, that's considered a civil war. I don't think the Gracchi brothers thing would be considered a war, but, but yeah, they, they, they consider them to be civil wars. And then the, when it's done, they're not like, this is the new government. This is the new order. They're like, okay, we fought this war to bring things back to normal. Everyone was fighting on the side of supposed normalcy. So this, is, this would kind of be like if, let's say the Confederacy had won the Civil War, they remain the uh, illegitimate claim to power. And now that that illegitimate uh, claim to power has won, the violence is not is not going to quite go away, but because like the union won and they were the legitimate rule of law, then normalcy can kind of go back to the to the country. Yeah, sure. I, I think so the so the American Civil War. I'm struggling to think of any parallels in Rome right now in terms of like similarities, but the yeah, I, I agree with what you're what you're saying that the the winning lends legitimacy. And with legitimate, when you are, when you have the legitimacy, you are the normal. I and see. so what you say is normal because you're, you're, you're the reality, right? It's like, uh, <laughs> you make the rules, you, you change history, so to speak, you write history. So after Sulla's tenure as dictator, he's passed a bunch of laws to attempt to hope to stop what he did from happening. Right to prevent armies from crossing into Rome, to prevent demagoguery in the Senate, he stripped a lot of the power from the assembly. He um, he made it so the Senate is really the ones that are in charge. Right. Mm, okay. During this time period, Caesar is kind of like making his way. He is a young patrician, but a patrician like a nobleman, but he's his family is very poor. Huh. So he falls in with the plebes, the, the plebeians caste, right? And, uh, well, they're not really a caste, the plebeian uh, social status. And he becomes kind of like a champion for them. And he sees them as a stepping stone, stepping stone to power. I'm just trying to get into his mindset. You know, I, I think this, I, like if he had been born just poor to begin with, he may not have had that sense of entitlement. I, I think coming from a a more powerful background, but then going through poverty, you still, you kind of want to regain your former glory, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. And he had a chip on his shoulder for the real rich people who they, they looked down on him because obviously, you know, people will look for any excuse to kind of like snub their nose at someone. And so Caesar did not like the noble class. You know, mm. he, he grew up, in the slums, right? He did not grow up on the Palatine Hill, which is where the uh, 
one, it's where the word palace comes from. And two, it's where the rich people in Rome lived on the Palatine Hill, right? He did not grow up there. He grew up in the slums. And uh, he, those people saw him as their savior and he saw them as his meal ticket, basically. And the noble, the other nobles, they knew this. And they, they tried to stop him from doing these at pretty much every turn and they just failed. It's kind of like sad, and I think it speaks to Caesar's personality a little bit. Rather than living in, in, in the slums, rather than trying to connect with these people and genuinely uplift them, he just automatically transplants himself there and says, how can I use this, this herd to uplift myself? There, there's never any thought of like, geez, life's not fair. I kind of see that now. I want to help these people. I see how they live. It's just a question of like, I need to get back to the palace. I need to get back to being super powerful. And these sheep are going to help me do that. Yeah, I, I would say that for the most part, that that was his motivation and his mode of thinking. Um, he would eventually link up with a very wealthy patron in a man named Licinius Crassus, the richest man possibly that ever lived. He was unfathomably wealthy. But in Rome at this point, wealth is not everything. They want glory. They want statues built of them. And people didn't get statues built for being rich. I guess you could build your own statues, but that wasn't good enough. So <laughs> there's a standard. There's a standard. Yeah, yeah exactly. They know it's not a real statue. It's just a pile of marble. So what would happen? So what happened was Crassus kind of threw his support behind Caesar, who was very likable and very, um, like appeal, very appealing. Thank you. Charismatic. So, was he charismatic? Thank you. Charismatic. Yes, yes, yes. So Crassus, Crassus through his support, he became a patron of Caesar and Caesar used Crassus's money and wealth to further push himself up the political ladder. Um, Caesar, there's uh, a year where Pompey and Crassus are co-consulars and they each have different agendas that they want. So that's uh, like a, a grassroots uh, congressperson having like a wealthy donor. And they, they may have to also make some concessions yes. like, okay, I'm going to make sure that when I'm elected, I pass that bill doing blah, blah, blah. That's correct. Yes. But it's it, unlike that, in this case, it also works in the other direction where Crassus was not uh, patronizing Caesar because he needed Caesar to pass laws. He was patronizing Caesar also, uh, because Caesar just improves his image. He like has enough money <laughs> that he's like, I'll throw you a couple of billion dollars because it makes me look good. And, um, you know, that's what I'm getting out of it. So Crassus and, and his rival Pompey become, and this would be Crassus and Pompey are the leaders of the, the Roman world. They're the co-consulars. They both have different agendas that they're trying to get through. What happens is Caesar sees this, sees this as an opportunity and he brings the two of them together and he says, what if you two agree to just support each other's measures wholeheartedly and then just don't, don't disagree with each other in public. And then when everyone's, when it's all said and done and we've amassed all the influence and power, then we can decide who's the, the end. And there they, they agreed. And Caesar was, was the mitigating force here. He's the junior member of this, what was called the, the first triumvirate. And using the triumvirate, the three of them, catapulted to levels of power that were just unheard of in Rome. By the time people realized what they were doing, it was way too late. They had amassed a ton of influence, a ton of power. Um, they were untouchable. 
they got everything they wanted. And we can focus on specifically what Caesar wanted, which was money. Caesar was broke at the time. He was spending all the money that Crassus was giving him on rising up the political ladder. That, that's not cheap. Right, you have to throw festivals and election, but just like today, right? You, you, <laughs> campaign uh, rallies, campaign. Yeah, no, you literally <laughs> have to do stuff like that. He, he was, he had himself elected as like a, in a position that's like responsible for throwing parties, basically for the sole purpose of throwing parties to make himself popular, so he could get elected to higher levels of office. You know, and so what he wanted was a governorship in a region that he could line his pockets. And he got it, he got the governorship in Gaul. And Pompey and Crassus anticipated this. They anticipated him because they helped get it, right? And, but the, the triumvirate starts to fall apart. Um, you start, they start to not trust each other as much. Their, their agendas are now clashing a bit more. The only problem is that Caesar is, so, is, so, is much more a capable general than any of them ever anticipated. <laughs> and he ends up conquering landmass equal to like four times the size of what Rome was and becoming so powerful and having so much support with his military that by the time he's done with his governorship, which I think is like 10 years, they can't stop him anymore. So what happens is, is that Pompey, who's kind of become, Pompey's consular again, Crassus is dead. We, we don't have to go into it, but let's, uh, very briefly, he waged uh, a war in the Middle East and died. Uh, legend, ha legend has it that they, the, the people who beat him in the war knew who he was and executed him by pouring molten gold down his throat. Jeez. Because he's, I mean, he's a, he's a miser. Right. Ah, like, uh, it's, it's kind of like, the, I, I think of that episode of The Simpsons where Homer is just fed donuts constantly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, here, here, have this thing that you wanted so badly and now you can die from it. Yeah, but, it's, it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> it's not good. So, um, so without the three of them, now there's only two, Pompey kind of like becomes the side of the Senate. Uh, he... He's in Rome during the time that Caesar is not in Rome, and he has taken a liking, a liking to democracy for some reason, and has decided that Caesar is an enemy to democracy. Um, Caesar, throughout his long career, has committed many crimes, bribery, corruption, um, and the, the senators in general don't like him because of his use of, of demagoguery, because of his use of the populace to kind of get his way. That's not the way that things were supposed to be. The Senate took it really personally when people of patrician standing tried to like, th there was like this unwritten rule in Rome, which was the patricians had all the money and all the power. The, the, the plebes had basically nothing. You as a patrician are not supposed to offer your power to the plebes and then use them to steal power from your uh, from other patricians because that idea of turning of the patricians turning on each other would eventually result in the patricians losing their power and so caesar was doing that the gracchi were doing that and so they the the, the rest of the senate which were all patrician did not like him for that they were just itching to get him to come back so they could try him and convict him of crime <laughs> and it's funny because he probably wasn't going to be executed. 
that was probably that was never on the table. More likely, he was going to pay a huge fine and spend the rest of his days in political obscurity. Huh. But, but that was unacceptable to Caesar. He could not live with that idea. And so he started a civil war to prevent that from happening. So it's like an all or nothing with him. It's like, I, I am going to take my power. And even if I could have a, a, like a retired, modest, comfort life in disgrace, that's unacceptable to me. I, ha- I, I have to go out on this thing either dead or on top of it. That's correct. So we have about 10 years from 60 BC to 50 BC, you have Caesar conquering in Gaul. Uh, a couple of years after that, Crassus is killed in the Middle East. Now it's after Caesar conquers Gaul, one year later, 49 BC, and the Senate sends a final, Senate sends a final ultimatum to Caesar. Uh, uh, I should mention that they had been going back and forth, where basically the Senate is like, your, t- your governorship is over, you need to disband your armies, and Caesar is like, I will disband my armies after I run for consular, because his hope, because once you... In, in Rome, when you're elected to a, a position of power, you can't commit any crimes, right? You can after you're done, but you can't while you're there. So Caesar's exactly like the president. You can't be a sitting president, can't be indicted. That's correct. So the, apparently. So the, um, <laughs> so the, uh, the, 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 the plan for Caesar was he was going to be elected consular and then that would protect him for an additional year. And then in that year, he would make rule changes that would enable him to stay out of trouble, right? And the Senate, being, being basically headed up by Pompey, said, you can't run for consul. You have to physically be present in Rome. That was the law. And obviously, if Caesar showed up in, in Rome, you can't show up with your military. <laughs> you'll be arrested on the spot. So he's like, I will, do, I will, I will show up in Rome if Pompey disbands his, his legions, right, his army. But at this point, Pompey's legions were kind of the Republic's legions, right? And then Pompey is like, I'll disband my legions if you disband your legions. And Caesar's like, I'm not, definitely not doing that. And so they're going back and forth. Eventually, it reaches ahead. And in 49 BC, Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon with the 13th legion, probably the source of the number 13 being unlucky. He, he famously utters, the die has been cast. And he and the 13th Legion cross the Rubicon, which signifies the crossing from Gallic territory into Roman territory with yes. an army, officially uh, kicking off the Civil War. Ah, right. wow. There we go. Crossing a monumentous the moment in history. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you've heard that phrase before. Yeah, right? crossing the Rubicon. That's what, in, in English... Uh, that's a phrase that we say when we say that someone has crossed a point of no return, a thing that they cannot walk back. <laughs> we say you have crossed the Rubicon. <laughs> a lot of a lot of stuff kind of harks back to Rome. It's really funny. A yeah. lot, a lot of stuff. Uh, but yeah, so the number thirteen comes from the Thirteenth Legion. And but yeah, so Caesar crosses the Rubicon and kicks off the Civil War. This is kind of the end of the Roman Republic, but. Or let's say the beginning of the end of the Roman Republic. I, I think uh, that's a a pretty good place to leave off, actually. Um, you know, I, I think that just to get some like general themes here, I, I think that we, we see many we can see many parallels in between uh, the United States and and Rome and this idea of like 
as things escalate, it's very important to keep foundational law intact. And like once, once that's been crossed, like, you know, we, we say that the Rubicon is the point of no return, but I would argue that um, once senators started killing one another, that's probably the point of no return. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And in, in, in our own government, in our own timeline that we're seeing right now, we are, I, I believe, we are seeing escalations in discourse in politics that will not be walked back, that can't be walked back, um, especially um, with our current sitting president, the things that he is willing to do, the steps that he's willing to take, and then from his opponents, um, particularly, uh, I guess you could, you know, I would point the finger at like Cortez or Sanders, that level of demagoguery as well are also, those are things that will not be walked back. In the 2016, or not 2016, in the 2008 election, was that, that was Romney, right? Uh, 2012 was Romney. Fine, sorry, okay, so I That was McCain, McCain in 2008. Okay, so let's do, let's do Romney then. Romney had that, that note about having binders of women, and it like sank him in the polls. It was like this huge scandal, mm -hmm. and that just today, not even a decade later, and that just wouldn't even bat an eye anymore. The discourse has moved so far that like, that's, that's, that's so beyond, we're so beyond the pale now that that, that level of like tone on the, deafness. On the around. bright side though, we haven't had any senators kill one another. So I think, I think, yes. I think there's still hope if we haven't crossed that level yet. If, if Rome could teach us that, there's still hope for us if, if we haven't done that. Absolutely. Um, all right. Thank you so much, Brett. This concludes the first part in our series, Rome, the Decline of Democracy. I'm Aaron Azarod.